Okay, today my guest is Professor Len Treminio. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Len as a person. Professor Treminio is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Treminio is the president of Ibero-American Academy of Management and the IB program director at Florida Atlantic University. His research is on the multinational enterprise, foreign direct investment, institutional theory, gender, diversity, and discrimination. Recently on the strategies uh, he was working on to mitigate the spread of coronavirus and its impact on business. He has published extensively at JIPS, Journal of International Business Policy, International Business Review, Journal of International Management, Asia-Pacific Journal of Management, Management International Review, Cross-Cultural Strategic Management, International Journal of Human Resource Management, and AIB Insights, among others. Len is very active at AIB conferences. So uh, thank you, Len, for joining us. My pleasure. I, I'm delighted to be here, Ilgans. Uh, Len, what did you want to become uh, when you were a child? <laughs> well, if we think of when I was a child, I think it's mostly fantasy. Um, I didn't want think about a doctor or a lawyer, but I, I really like to play superheroes. And I always, I, we always choose which one we want to be. I was Thor, so I thought if I could fly through the air and save people, uh, that would be a, an interesting career. Um, after that, a little bit later on, I, I really love sports and especially baseball. So I really practiced and I'd like to become a um, major league baseball pitcher. Uh, unfortunately, I was a bit of a late, had a late growth spurt when I got my driver's license at 16 years old. I was still five feet, five inches tall and about less than 120 pounds. Now I'm six feet one. And maybe uh, if I had grown <laughs> earlier, I would have had a chance to realize my dream of being a pitcher. That's funny. Where did you grow up? I grew up in South Bend, Indiana, which is where Notre Dame is, where I went to school for undergraduate. And uh, can you remember the earliest moment of awareness between foreign versus domestic? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I was influenced by my parents, obviously, and uh, they, they both had European backgrounds. My father, um, French and Spanish, and my mother, he was first generation, and my mother was second generation German-Irish. And, you know, my father, uh, grew up in Mexico. And so I have a lot of relatives that were Mexican and I interacted with a lot of Mexican people in South Bend when I was growing up. So I learned to speak Spanish and uh, appreciate the culture of foreign countries at an early age. Um, so that's, that's where I noticed the, the difference very early in life of, of cultures and um, having that European and especially Mexican influence. And how did you choose academia? Oh, well, I, I think it was really not what I chose. It was by a process of uh, elimination. When I went to Notre Dame, I, I wanted to become a president. I studied finance and then I worked at General Electric. I, I just felt something wasn't right. I, you know, I, I enjoyed it. I, I knew the technical aspects of finance. And then after I did my MBA, I tried again at uh, Leo Burnett Advertising. I worked on Pop-Tarts and new products, uh, introduced the Nutrigrain bars, 
And um, every time I was doing something international along with that, when I was studying uh, marketing at Indiana University, I studied also um, international business. And so when I got to Leo Burnett, it was like, yeah, this is fun. This is cool. Everyone would kill to have this job in advertising. And yet something didn't feel right. And so once again, I went back to school and I, I thought, well, I'll get a PhD. I always like to write. And then when I got there, it's, it's, it took me a little while to shift and see that, yeah, this is a good career for me. And so I finally accepted and accepted that I was going to become an academic. Later on, I, I really loved it and realized that it was just a fabulous fit. Um, but I would say, once again, it was a process of elimination. <laughs> Interesting. So you actually gave up a modern day madman. <laughs> yes, I was trying to be the next uh, Darren Stevens or madman executive. And you know, it was a great company in, uh, in, in Chicago, downtown, and working on the Kellogg's account. And I enjoyed it. I, the creative process was there as you're mixing business, working with artists and, uh, and copywriters. And you know, it was a cool place to work, but it just, I don't know. It just didn't feel right for me. Perfect. Uh, something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting. Well, I love to do yoga. I'm a, I would say I'm an advanced Iyengar yoga practitioner. And I can do some pretty interesting asanas or poses, such as uh, I can put my leg behind my head, basically. <laughs> and I can do a side crow where the legs are extended out to the side and side crow or side crane. It's called um, Parsa Bakasana. And so I love yoga and I, I do it to kind of balance myself out because I'm pretty high energy. I like to lift weights. I like to um, do long distance and endurance activities like cycling. But um, I had to learn that I, I needed to balance that out with some sort of you know meditation and yoga, other kinds of things that involved breathing and things. Interesting. Uh, if you stopped uh, doing what you're doing and choose a second career path, alternative career path, what, what would it be? I think I could have been a pretty good actor. Um, I, I, <laughs> uh, it sounds like one of those fantasy ideals, but I think if I had put my mind to it, I could have been some kind of actor. Um, I, I usually get confused with an actor you may know about. It's uh, Christopher Walken. And um, <laughs> one, one time somebody, sometimes some people think I'm his son or something like that. And uh, I think it's more like his speech and his mannerisms and things of that nature. And then sometimes William Defoe, Defoe but, um, but who played the Green Goblin on uh, Spider-Man series. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, I, I think acting would be a fun career and something that I could be passionate about. Sure. Um... I remember him in uh, The English Patient with the North Arms. And that was a good oh, movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, regrets, have you got any regrets? Um, you know, not really any regrets, but if I, if I think back to, for instance, um, my, my finishing up my doctoral program, uh, Hans Thorelli, who was a famous uh, marketing professor and international business, more marketing, but he was really a, a superstar. 
And he advised me to stay a couple of extra years um, working. I left three years, uh, AB, I left after three years at Indiana with ABD. And I came back from, from a skiing trip in France in my third year. This was before the internet. And uh, there was a note on my desk and the University of Miami wants to speak with you. And so they invited me down for an interview, offered me the job. and. And I thought, well, I'm not making very much money here, and um, I, you know, I can go go to Miami and get out of poverty, <laughs> basically. And uh, so Hans, Hans's advice was was very sage, and um, I might have thought about sticking around and working with him and and others at Indiana for a couple of more years. But you know, we do the best we can in life, and uh, I I don't have too many regrets. Perfect. Um... What are you most passionate about? I'm passionate about music. I'm passionate about creativity. Creativity. I'm passionate about passionate about solving world problems. Um, and when I think about passion, I like to ex- I like to try my best to contribute to what I'm passionate about. And I can talk some, some about some of those things, but I also like to experience other people's passions. So, for example, when I talk about music, I could think about um, world-class musicians. You know, who's the best drummer in the world? Well, I think as far as rock goes, I like rock music. Uh, I, I would look to John Bonham at Led Zeppelin, a previous rock band. And John Bonham, he's one of those people where, you know, Led Zeppelin, after he died, they disbanded, they couldn't go on. Any other band would just pick up another drummer. But he was in a class by himself. Uh, You could look to Jimi Hendrix. I think he was the greatest guitarist, rock guitarist ever. There were other styles of guitars. Um, I I like beer and and I, I learned about different beers as I grew up and I became more sophisticated. But I'm just amazed at uh, what the Trappist monks from Belgium can produce. And they've been doing it since the sixth century and they produce just amazing beers or wine. I don't even drink beer or wine. I don't drink other stuff, but um, you know what the Australians did with Grange wine to compete with the French and Bordeaux and somebody who can produce a six or seven or $800 bottle of wine every year, every year, one after another, not regarding the terroir, the weather. I think that's really cool. And um, and I'm and I like to experience what somebody did with their creativity. Uh, writers we could talk about Hemingway, Dostoevsky, Shakespeare, etc. I'd love to read what someone how they can put words together and make it so interesting. Scientists, I mean Einstein, Marie Curie, just world class people. It's um, I'm passionate about trying to be motivated by their accomplishments and and make some small accomplishments, uh, not on their scale, but the best I can do. Perfect. Uh, let, let, let's switch to research and let's continue with creativity idea. How do you define creativity? What does your mind think of in a state of idle curiosity? How does these, how does the process work for you? Yeah, that's a great question. And first of all, I almost never outline a paper. I just think when I have it up here, 
I can put it down on the paper. And after I read enough papers, and sometimes it's in the hundreds or even 200 papers, then I have enough knowledge to be able to try to stand on the shoulders of giants. But um, it cannot be forced. You can, you can learn and you can try and you can write. But I always, I've learned over the past 10 or 15 years that sometimes you just have to put what you want to do in the back of your mind. And then your unconscious can come up with, with great answers to problems. For instance, uh, I have a dog and um, he's a great dog and he needs to be walked twice a day. And sometimes I'm just, I'll walk with him and all of a sudden I have a great idea. It's happened like six, five, six times in the last two or three years. And then I come home and I'll write it down. It's, so I think there's a conscious activity to creating and there's also an unconscious uh, element to, to being creative. Um, but what I try to do is, is also think about, when I think about an outline, it's in my head, what is the, the flow, the rhythm of the, of the process? How, how does that kind of come about? And also um, the way I think about, if we wanna say creativity and writing a paper, um, I think we all start with a blank canvas, right? And that blank canvas may be in your mind, it may be on a piece of paper, whether, whether we're making beer or whether we are uh, uh, cooking or whether we're painting, we all start with a blank canvas. And I have the same, maybe I don't have all the same, but I have the same words in my mind and my vocabulary, the same mathematical symbols as somebody else. And if I can combine those words in such a way that makes a novel creative contribution, well, then I'm, I'm all set. The same way that Van Gogh uh, painted stuff and had the same access to all the different watercolors and, um, uh, and paper and canvas and brushes than anybody else had, but Van Gogh was a genius. And uh, he put them in a, such a way that, that nobody else could do. So that's the way I look at creativity and the writing process. And I feel if I can do that in such a novel way and arrange those words and mathematical symbols accordingly, then I can make a novel contribution. Beautiful. Asli and I have a paper in AMI on, on the creativity, uh, the process of creativity. And I, I like to ask this question about um, how uh, my guests uh, talk about or think about uh, creation versus discovery. And you put it very nicely. Let me ask you, uh, do you work every day? Do you have to sit in front of a laptop every day? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I like to read a lot of news. So I spend a lot of time keeping up on the world and the way the world works. And I, I've heard different people talk about that. One friend of mine said he works six hours a day on writing every day. Um, I try to work mostly every day, even on the weekends, I do a little bit. Um, but I also find sometimes I just need to take a break. And now it's sort of in one of those times, uh, it was mostly a few weeks ago, I'm ready to get back at it, uh, just to give my mind a chance to relax and recuperate because I think it's really important. It's also important for me to exercise and go running 
and do some physical activity and try not to think about anything. I don't get any ideas. I don't think I get any ideas when I'm engaged in uh, exercise or physical activity, even yoga, because I'm so focused on what I'm doing. But when I'm walking with the dog, I'm not thinking about anything. Stuff pops in and it's boom. Wow, that's a really cool idea. Yeah, so I, I, I just love the the creative process, doing theory. And um, it's just, it's a pleasure. I don't know. I just, I wasn't, I wasn't passionate like this about things when I was doing the business jobs and stuff. Although I do like to consult from time to time and things, but, uh, but thinking about theory is, uh, it's exciting. How do you explain your research and the importance of, well, these are uh, <laughs> muses, muses right there. Uh, how do you explain the importance of your research to people who don't read your work regularly? And um, the process of research and theory. How do you explain it to people who don't uh, read academic work? Oh, I see. Well, I can just explain to people that you know what I like to do as far as my job. They ask me, "Well, what do you what do you do, professor?" Most people just think you teach a lot of classes. I say I. A big part of my job is doing research. It's thinking about some of the world's problems like immigration or like um, climate change, or as you mentioned, pandemics and how to control the spread of pandemics. And um, I, I try to build models uh, and, and, and write theory to try to resolve some of these issues. Uh, I guess that's the easiest way to explain it to, for instance, a lay person. About omitted areas of research, uh, things that we should cover more of, neglected areas of um, inquiry, what would those be? Well, in, in IB, um, I think, you know, we could look at the process of internationalization. And in the 60s and 70s, early 70s, you know, scholars were mostly looking at flows of investment uh, from a country level kind of thing with uh, one of the scholars was Aliber and he looked at that uh, issue in 1970. Uh, then in the, um, Heimer was actually a little bit earlier, but he got published in 1976 and he, he looked at the multinational enterprises, more of that unit of analysis. So it moved from the, uh, the macro to the country level to the firm level. And then um, uh, more, well, after that it was, uh, Johansson and Valny looked at the international process theory kind of thing. But what they did not examine and they called a black box was the underlying processes, the decision-making that led to that investment. So we covered that in a recent Jibs article in this discourse-based view. And um, so I think one of the things that, well, two areas I think we need to look at as far as internationalization is concerned. One is these uh, management decision-making and getting at the person as the unit of analysis to discover these underlying uh, decision-making mechanisms that lead to an investment in the first place. But second, it's related to these uh, United Nations so-called 17 grand challenges. And um, for these great problems such as climate change, migration, gender inequality. I believe we need um, coordination between public and private partnerships and multinational enterprises to really take some of this on because it's, it's too great of a problem 
for um, for even governments to tackle. About uh, the discourse-based view, uh, how do you see it evolving into uh, a bigger line of research in the next five to 10 years? What's, what's the future of it? Yeah, that's a great question. One of the things we talked about in the, the, the discourse-based view of internationalization was that uh, discourse is fairly well developed in the management field. There's a lot of uh, papers there and in, 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 to a little bit lesser extent in strategy and, uh, and not so much in international business. So I think we, have, we can use these, uh, this viewpoint, the discourse-based view to examine what companies say. In other words, with talk and texts, we can understand what the company is. We can pinpoint when the investment was made, why it was made, and um, uh, we can examine power relations within a company. I think the power uh, and discourse has a lot to do with, with who uh, wins out in the, the phase of where to invest and when to invest. So it's just something that we believe can be developed not only in international in internationalization process theory, but also in, for instance, interna uh, international entrepreneurship and other areas. So it's just not as well developed as we believe it could be in international business. So we hope that that paper will also spur additional uh, discourse research in, in the international business. And uh, you had a classical training and then you got into a lot of uh, interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary areas and now the new uh, new things like the, the spread of coronavirus, the, the, the uh, immigrants, immigration, and the impact of uh, these um, challenges on business. Uh, what was the thought? What's your thought on interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary research in IB? Well, I, I think it's certainly something that differentiates international business from other fields, as is the current uh, point by a Guinness that's in the, uh, it's in the online first now on JIBS. So this is a, maybe a contentious point, but I think interdisciplinary is one of those elements that distinguishes international business. Uh, but also I think um, personally, and from, from my perspective, uh, I, I probably didn't take the advice when someone said you should stick to the knitting and stick to one thing and do it very well. I become interested in lots of different things. And if someone had told me um, 20 years ago that I would be doing research on gender diversity and inclusion, I, I would have thought they were nuts. And uh, yet here I am, I, I, I got involved with someone else got me involved in a paper and then I took off with some stuff and now I'm an expert on gender and I like it. But what I, what I like about uh, multidisciplinary is you can go where, where you need to go whether it's political economy, whether it's immigration literature, whether it's biology or whatever it is to help you explain a, uh, a phenomenon and to, to contribute to that literature. So international business scholarship gives you the ability to, to go wherever you need to go to, to solve problems. And personally, what I find very interesting is trying to contribute to the resolution of, of grand challenges. 
and to make society a better place. In that case, I, I really feel passionate about disenfranchised people, whether it's uh, women or minorities or poor countries that feel the brunt of climate change, even though they don't contribute as much to climate change as rich countries. So I feel that somebody has to speak up for disenfranchised people. And at this stage in my career, uh, trying to solve grand, cha grand challenges is one of the things that I want to try and do. Uh, well, I mean, you're working on these uh, new topics and in your opinion, what's, uh, which IB questions are overly studied? There is no uh, much mileage out of uh, studying these things uh, anymore. Um, yeah, I think, I think, I mean, I could say institutional theory that because that's probably the one that is most studied in international business, but I, I certainly think there's more mileage there. So I can't say that it should not be studied anymore, but I would say, I would say more toward a balance between quantitative and qualitative. I, and I've done both research. I've done qualitative and I've done quantitative. And I think, and I review qualitative papers. One of the things we have to be very careful about is to make sure that the research processes, the documentation of uh, the evolution of theory and thematic content analysis is very uh, strictly documented because people are gonna take shots at qualitative research and say it's not as rigorous well, it can be even more rigorous than quantitative research, but um, doctoral students become so immersed in quantitative methods in the doctoral program uh, that we forget about some of the qualitative uh, kind of elements of, of that. So I would, I would like to see rather than say, extinguish institutional theory or extinguish quantitative, just maybe create a more of a balance between quantitative and qualitative studies. Perfect. Now, this brings us to advice portion. Um, what are some of the most common mistakes that you see uh, junior faculty or PhD students um, uh, make? And what are the do's and don'ts, uh, according to you? Well, one thing, I'm, I'm working with a doctoral student right now, <clears throat> and she's very good. And um, I think she's going to be able to... to Put out some good work. So I got her involved in helping me to review a paper just so she could get some experience kind of a thing. Of course, I'll take responsibility for it, and but I just wanted her to get some responsibility. And she's developing a survey instrument. And I always cautioned her to make sure you don't leave anything out of the survey. Wait, test it, get some advice, ask other people, because if you leave it out, you can't go back and get it. You cannot go back and get it. And I'm reviewing a paper where I think they left something out and she's helping me review the paper. So she saw that and learned the lesson by, uh, by doing this work kind of a thing. So that's one thing I would tell uh, uh, students is to make sure you, you're, you have a very complete survey instrument before you send it out. Uh, the next thing I would, uh, I think, I think one thing PhD students, junior scholars tend to do is they either underestimate their capabilities, rarely, but sometimes I see some that overestimate 
their skills and capabilities. And you have to believe in your work. You have to believe in your work. Uh, if you don't believe in it, nobody's going to. Um, and I've been, I'm passionate about it. I believe in my work. Now it's not, it doesn't always get into the journal I want to get it into because the process is, is random or the work's not good enough or whatever. I'm a firm believer in, in the market, in the marketplace. Um, but when I start talk about believing in your work, don't give up. And I'll give some uh, students or junior faculty an example. My co-authors and I published a paper in a top tier management journal recently. And we were rejected five or six times from top tier management journals. And one of my co-authors said to me after the fifth time or sixth time, so, well, I guess we better drop down to this journal. I don't wanna mention any journals. And I said, nope, there's one more on the table and we're going after that top tier journal. I believed in the work and I thought there were some political components to us getting rejected and, and we got it in. So I persevere. Um, you, you, thick skin, we all hear about that. I mean, doctoral students, you, you've got to get a thick skin. How do you get a thick skin? With practice. Um, you, you get it with practice. We all get papers rejected, everybody. And we all get rejected more times than we get accepted. And now it doesn't even phase me. Say, like, okay, I got rejected. It's a random process. And maybe the next time I'll get lucky. <laughs> well, every time you get a rejection, it's the end of the world. Till the next morning, and there's another new day. <laughs> the sun comes up. I can walk down to the beach. It's less than a mile from here, and uh, you know, I just try again. I just try again. You're right, but uh, you know, we must say something about good associate editors and editors uh, that really uh, make the paper, push the papers. Uh, help the paper uh, versus uh, very difficult and sometimes unreasonable referees. You know, uh. Yes, yes, it's exactly true. I, as a, as a referee, I, I think I'm tough but fair. I try to never give uh, authors a moving target. I try to be straight and I try to give them, I try to throw everything at them in the first round. Something may come up, of course, and I, if I see the paper, I think it can be better. Uh, and I think it's publishable. I still want to really push them to create something better, just like I get pushed. I'll get, just give you a quick example. In that uh, COVID paper we published, um, the, uh, the editor, I don't know if I can mention a name or something. Yep. Yeah, Dana Minbaeva, she did a great job. Of course, it's public information. And she and her team of, of uh, reviewers really pushed us to create a paper and to, to keep it succinct enough and to make a contribution. And, um, you know, we saw that they liked the paper, but it was a lot of work. It was a, a great deal of work. And we ended up having to do a three-way interaction. And, you know, that is, it was tough. It was tough, but we got it done. And um, I think most of the times reviewers are not to screw you. You know, they're there to help you. They're giving you their best feedback. And if most of the time when I get rejected, I say, yeah, that's a pretty good review. They're correct. Once in a while, I don't agree, and but I move on. I, this is the business that we've chosen, as uh, as uh, the mobster said in The Godfather. <laughs> <laughs> this is the business. Uh, it was Hyman Roth. <laughs> this is the business that we've chosen. This is the way it works. Sometimes you win. Sometimes you lose. <laughs> 
Um, any advice for mid-career people after tenure? After tenure? Well, get used to a little more service. <laughs> is the first thing. Uh, after tenure, you know, you can take a little bit of a break, but uh, depending upon what kind of school you're at, in order to get full professor, they want to see. Uh, I've heard pre-tenure times two from some of my colleagues at, at um, top 100 schools. And so just keep doing what you're doing. You did enough to get tenure and <clears throat> you'll be successful. Find out what you're passionate about. Maybe try to increase your network. Reach out to people. Don't be afraid to cold call. I've done some cold calls with uh, authors who've turned out to be great friends and, and co-authors. And uh, I, I wanna work with the best people and just reach out to them. All they can do is say no. And most of the time they say yes when I reach out and create your network, especially as you're going up for full because, because <clears throat> about 7% of papers in top tier management journals are published by single authors, about 7%. So you need to focus on what it is you do best and find co-authors who can complement that. I used to do my own methods and working by myself and doing everything. Now I, I work with people like Carolyn Egri, Herman Aguinas, and they're world-class method, methodologists. Why would I bother? I, I just work on perfecting the theory and, and pointing out things with methods as it comes up and this and that. But I truly believe in, in specialization uh, in order to have a better chance at these journals with high rejection rates. Perfect, thank you. Uh, Len, uh, what's the question that I should have asked you about haven't? Um, maybe just, uh, I guess for, for junior faculty or maybe even uh, mid, mid assistants, uh, professors, how do I manage research, teaching and service? Um, because you have to be good at all three in order to get tenure. And I would say, yes, of course, we understand you're not going anywhere without the research. This is very important. But I've seen a couple of cases <clears throat> in, in recent years about some people who had problems with the teaching, a little bit of problems with the teaching, nothing that could not be overcome. But don't forget to, to be an excellent teacher, be passionate about your teaching and give students everything you have in the classroom. And uh, just like you do with your research, be passionate about it. And um, with respect to service, uh, do the best you can. You should be shielded from service early on, but as an associate professor, be ready to contribute more. So don't forget about the other two things, um, but get networks, find people that are passionate uh, about the same things you're passionate about and you, you can work together and you have fun together kind of a thing. So I would advise students just to, uh, just to have fun. You picked a, a great career. People advise me when I went to back to get my PhD, oh, the glory days are over. It's not the greatest profession anymore. I think it's a fabulous profession. I, I love what I do and I get paid to travel around the world and paid to work with super smart people and write papers and hang out. And uh, so enjoy your, enjoy your career. 
Thank you. Thank you very much for this very interesting and candid interview. I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank you, Len. Thanks for doing that, guys. I appreciate it.